the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to do so with my dear friend and friend to the community, Hugh Hallman. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney. He is an educator. He is a... uh, civic activist, and uh, we tend to do our third hours together on uh, Tuesdays. Anything on your mind? He and I have a few things we want to bounce back and forth off each other. Let me give out the phone number, 602-508-0960. Welcome, Hugh. Good to see you, sir. It is a delight and honor to be here. Honor is mine. I I do hope we get some callers. We actually have one waiting. I'm not sure what we got here, but let's take it and see. The most important voice is always yours. John in Phoenix, how are you, sir? You're on with me. Hello, Seth. Hi. Um, Thank you for for taking my call. Of course. Um, Yes, and and I wasn't preparing this uh, thinking that Hugh was going to be exactly on to answer this question, but he could, I'm certain he will add much value. Okay. so I'm currently sitting with the book in my lap right now. Second book I've read of is James O'Keefe, the book uh-huh. American Muckraker. Okay. Um, I am disgusted in what I've heard recently about Project Veritas and his board mm-hmm. uh, uh, throwing him out mm-hmm. of the out of the company. Yeah. It appears as you know something that you've used as far as a description, not passing the smell test. Sure. I mean, in regards to recently what happened with. Pfizer and the disclosure that he had in regards to Pfizer, okay. in regards to, I would equate this as Tesla, Tesla's board throwing off Elon Musk. Okay. I mean, somebody such a visionary. Yeah. And I don't know, it just seems like there's something to this in regards to the FBI having raided his house before, yep. Yep. Uh, regarding uh, Ashley Biden's diary. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's about the preventing the dissemination of the truth. Yeah. And it it disgusts me and I wanted your guys Sure. Thank you, this. John. And I I don't have more knowledge on this than you. I followed the story when it first broke uh, what about 10 days ago or so, maybe almost 2 weeks ago and the only th- so I, I think we're just going to have to wait to see it all shake out. I know that, um, and and I should tell you, I've never met James O'Keefe. I've been in rooms mm-hmm. with him, but I've never actually met him. I don't know him, nor do I think do I know any of the board members. I don't think I even recognize who's on the board. It would be odd to me. the The first thing that would be odd to me is if he was uh, forced out or released or whatever the term of art is, because he did too good of a job. I would think people were. Who were joining that board, you know, did so knowing that they were going to be muckrakers exposing the liberal left progressive institutions and agendas. Uh, is it possible Pfizer uh, put their finger on the um, on the scale here? It's everything is and anything is. I will say this, and maybe Hugh knows something about this too, John. So I I, I, sh- I share all your concerns. Let me just I, let me be very clear about that. I just don't know a lot, but the one thing I do know. In you see it from time to time, is that founders, particularly in political movements, do get dismissed. I was thinking when I read about it 
of um, the founding of the Heritage Foundation, the, probably the, the, the leading uh, conservative think tank. It was created by two men, uh, Ed Fulner and Paul Weirich. And Paul Weirich was not associated with them for after the second year of the Heritage Foundation. He had to go start his own organization called Congress for a Free America and that sort of thing. Um, American Enterprise Institute for many years was run by its founder, James Baruti. Was it James Baruti? Something Baruti. He was thrown out. So it, it it's not unique. It's not unprecedented to see that the founder and the visionary uh, and the board have to part ways. More than that, I don't have much to say. I, Hugh, I don't know if you've seen this kind of thing. You've been sure, involved with a lot of nonprofits. Well, well, I'd go beyond that. It's not unique to a nonprofit context either. There's this company called Apple Computer yeah, that right, Stephen Jobs right, helped right, found right. and got thrown out by the board right. and John Scully. Now, he retook control through all kinds of careful maneuvering, but that took a long time. Uh, so that's not a unique thing. What's interesting to me is, number one, I'd certainly wait to see what the final analysis or information is that tells us. There's a lot we don't know. Yeah. And it can be as simple as the, the examples you gave, which are people then have differences of opinion on a direction. And if you have not created a nonprofit with controls on it that allow you to keep control as a founder, you can be pitched out. Well, Stephen Jobs found out the same thing with Apple Computer. Uh, so that's not unique to charities. Waiting is important. But uh, the the mission, vision, values question comes up often because in the nonprofit context, unlike a profit context where at some point everybody is trying to figure out how to make sure the shareholders make money, in a nonprofit context, it is not unusual that the founding vision gets lost and the organization moves into a direction that the founders would be stunned by. And, uh, you know, arguably, that brings us to where we are today in the United States. Here we had founders who created a constitution. <laughs> How did I do that? That was Brought good. Brought it all the way back. That was good. That we have founders of a constitution who would probably look at a number of the issues <laughs> that we're dealing with and be scratching their heads. How on earth did this become a subject for government intrusion? Yeah. And uh, your guest in the last hour spoke about this eloquently, both of you together. You know, we have the medical industrial crisis complex that's now built up to that started as an example and it actually started before that but the AIDS crisis that you guys were talking about in the last hour that the same suspects showed up in the COVID crisis now to take what they learned from AIDS and apply it to COVID and suddenly the shocking things that even Anthony Fauci couldn't imagine the American public putting up with lockdowns like they were doing in China. Suddenly they experimented with it and found out that the cattle were willing to be moved into pens or the sheep were willing to be moved into pens. And unfortunately, here we are even a year and a half out from that crazy and we've got people who decided they kind of like not having to actually go to work to get paid. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, John, we're in a position where we don't have any more information than you do. But that would be my advice on how to approach it is wait until the full evidence is in. We got the full information and it could be just a, a true philo philosophical fight or there could be something on Torah occurred or it could be the standard. The mission, vision, values get lost in the founding and the new board members come in with their own baggage and head off in a different direction. Can I can I add something to this? Sure, please. Okay, there 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 were a few a few bits of other other things. I listened to a Charlie Kirk podcast in regards to this. Yep. The major excuses for the board were something to the extent of the amount that he was spending on limousines and flights within a year. 
the amount that he was spending was less than the amount he would have spent if he would have had a full-time driver of a limousine for him on a daily basis because he's going to four four appointments per day, and and he's so scattered, and he's traveling 300-and-something days per year. So that was one thing that Charlie Kirk, I I believe he kept saying over and over, like, it just doesn't seem... The spending was defensible to Charlie. Okay. A major enough excuse to dismiss uh, uh, James O'Keefe. Then the other thing I saw yesterday... And I didn't read the full article. There was something about them possibly, that organization, Project Veritas, possibly being threatened to lose their tax-exempt uh, status, for whether it be a 5013C or whatever it is, yeah. a, mm-hmm. a charitable yep. organization. Yep. I'm thinking, therefore, was the government in there threatening that we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, maybe, you know, infiltrated the board? They're throwing out Charlie Kirk. Where it leads me to those stats is James O'Keefe, maybe yeah. to maybe to many people they might think Charlie uh, or James, think yeah. that James O'Keefe and Project Veritas is a small thing. Yeah, I we will. We'll find it. out. I mean, we'll, and these things are possibilities. I will tell you this: having worked in a lot of and with a lot of uh, nonprofits and think tanks in Washington D.C., some here, but more in Washington D.C. Uh, I've I've often threatened to write a book about how scandalously money is spent and unnecessarily so. Um, you would be surprised, John, um, about the defense that a lot of principals make about the money they think they need to spend, um, where they live quite well, thank you, off the $5 and $10 donations from uh, people who think that all their money is just going great, great, uh, uh, all their money is going to the cause. I'm not saying that's the case here. I don't know that it is. You just raised the point that that may have been an issue. I am telling you, that is a book uh, of its own making about a lot of nonprofit activity, particularly out of Washington, D.C., and in both movements. And, and uh, I'm to- always surprised by people who are in it for the cause who think they need a limousine and a driver. I've always been surprised by this. And Seth and I are on the same page in that regard there. But it, I will, to give uh, some credence to your point, John, it wasn't that many years ago that we had the IRS demonstrated to have biased uh, determinations with respect to conservative charity right. applications right. in compared to liberal applications. Right. So one could certainly imagine an instance in which the uh, IRS decides to go after charities that are conservatively based uh, about their exemption. That can happen. Uh, but uh, I'm with Seth. The moment you said that he was using a limousine, I start going, eh, and I get real comfortable because, you know, that, that little uh, cheap car that I drove as mayor uh, when everybody else had to have a Cadillac, uh, I think, stood as an example. All right, John. Thank you. We will find out more. Um, I'm sure we will. This is too big of a story not to. All right. We've got to take a quick break. Be right back. We were having a debate earlier about what constitutes classic rock. Dire Straits probably gets in there, doesn't it? Yeah, Dire Straits. Hugh Hallman is my guest. Hugh, what ails you today? 
What ails me today is your monologue. Oh, gosh. And it doesn't ail me. It lifted me. <laughs> oh, it helped overcome the ailments uh, from which I was suffering. But I would commend uh, your listeners to the first hour. Go to the uh, website. Go to Seth's show. Give him the website address. Yes. And you look for web, uh, Seth's show, and you can get all of his uh, broadcasts. Unless, of course, you have the app, which you can get at your various uh, app stores. But today's monologue was really... Uh, to give voice yet again to the fact that we've got a new agenda changing the written record of the United States and, frankly, the world, mostly Western literature, to now make it more, as we used to say, politically correct. Uh, And so the victim recently... uh, We had Roald Dahl about a week ago or two weeks ago, right? Now Ian Fleming. And now Ian Fleming. So we've got to demasculinize, if that's not the word. uh, Emasculate. Emasculate would be the right word, but that that suggests something that's a little more graphic than I was going for. We only do that to five-year-olds. Correct. Right. Uh, Right. uh, In this instance, to turn him into a very um, soft, open... representation of what men should be in the modern universe. An evolved male, I think they call it. Yes, an evolved male. But what I was brought to about this, and you you use George Orwell as the the launch pad. It's something you've done a lot lately, which is, I think, important. We have to repeat the fact that we had an entire nation that Orwell was writing about, the Soviet Union, and he was writing a book about this uh, uh, not-Soviet Union state and, and described the process of creating history as follows, quote, Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. My sadness about the monologue is you make reference to a lot of things that not everybody is going to be immediately understanding as this process has continued. Because when you talk about the fact that every statue and every street building has been renamed, think of what occurred over the last three years. We had people in public parks in these United States ripping down statues of Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln for being racists uh, and replacing them. Well, it was interesting to me 30 years ago, we saw the Lenin statues and the Stalin statues that were left being torn down in countries that were becoming free of the Soviet Union. And in some of those, Lenin statues have been re-erected. Interestingly, this is not just fiction, because he was describing a process in the Soviet Union that was taking place in the same way it's now taking place in these United States. Yeah. When the Stop- Soviet novel has become a how-to manual. Yes, and, and in fact, he was describing the how-tos in the Soviet Union. Right. So we're falling through the looking glass, to steal another author's concept, and we are now in a, a, a la-la land where we are engaged in rewriting our history to cleanse it of uh, its virtues and to celebrate the worst of it and claim that is what is the, the basis of this. So 1776 is no longer the meaningful founding of this country that we celebrated when I was in eighth grade. 
uh, at its 200th anniversary. But instead, we're celebrating 1619 because it demonstrates that slavery is the true founding of this country and the true principle on which this country is based, notwithstanding the Declaration of Independence, notwithstanding a civil war to cure us of that failure to address it at our founding uh, in the new Constitution. Had we perhaps we would have had a very different outcome because the British came to a very different conclusion at the same time period and eliminated slavery in a way that solved some of that problems. They didn't get rid of discrimination. Uh, Certainly, uh, there's lots of discrimination that still takes place in uh, Great Britain. But our country is now cleansing itself of not the things that are uh, abhorrent. We're not trying to hide that slavery exists. We're trying to say that it's the only thing. And that is having a devastating impact on our society's glue because young people no longer are learning the lessons of what makes this country great, why it is a great nation. And they start lining up behind people who believe that this is a horrible place in part because they have no idea what horror really is. And this is a point you make again in your in your um, monologue talking about the idea that people from other countries might come visiting us, <laughs> yeah. worrying about discrimination yeah. and finding out that we've lost our mind. Yeah, we're going after Theodore that, Geisel, you know, people, right? Yeah, people <laughs> from Darfur would come here who are really subjected to horrible discriminatory problems. And we're arguing over what constitutes racism uh, in some, quote, implied, unquote, basis Uh, And I think you did a brilliant uh, monologue last week about the fact that if we're now going to go to implicit bias as the demonstration and the disease, how do you ever know it's cured? It is like the guy who's selling you the uh, paint coating on your new car, (laughs) which you can't see. But believe me, it's there and it protects the paint. How do you know? Right. It's the emperor that, without clothes. So here we are. Exa- it's the opposite of that, of that in fact, that, uh, that we are a nation without a soul because we're going to decide we're soulless and forget the fact that the aspirations of the Constitution, the aspirations of the Declaration of Independence were exactly that. They were the aspirations for society to try to reach for and do the best we could to continue moving humanity out of the muck and towards the greatest goals we could achieve and that we now are only celebrating our failures and claiming that that is entirely what defines us is absurd and destructive and potentially destructive of the last best hope of humanity to take Ronald Reagan's conception from Abraham Lincoln's conception from Thomas Jefferson's original conception that he stole from the Greeks. <laughs> and that probably is what primes us to think we are a lousy, a sick country. And it probably is what primes us and allows us to think of the worst of what we thought in any condition, i.e. specifically during COVID as well. Remember, these things operated in tandem. This was all in the same year, 2020. But it is odd. You raise a generation with that understanding, and it's been about a generation that they've been raised, maybe just a little bit longer with that understanding. And we come up to this poll that caught my attention today. 41%, a plurality of Americans, now believe race relations in this country are getting worse than they did two and three years ago. That's an odd thing. We're regressing. I, I suppose if you teach it, people will soon believe it, right? I yes. mean, that's that's kind of what the problem is here. We used to want to unite our races. We seem to be on a kick 
to divide us again and over and over again by race. Ibram Kendi, the the professor at Boston University who gets the Netflix series and the lectures and the corporate uh, and the corporate speaking gigs to train on diversity and equity and equality and excuse me diversity equity and inequality says that the that the only response to previous discrimination is current discrimination that's exactly the opposite of what we all kind of came together on to use your your nice construction of that, Hugh, under Thurgood Marshall and the Brown versus Board of Education concept and, frankly, the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, who could unite us around what? What did he unite us around? Not 1619, 1776. Let me take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman is my in-studio guest, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, educator. <clears throat> Hugh, uh, you were kind of making a relationship here uh, between the surrender, basically, of sovereignty. And what kind of surprised us was the willingness with which we were so easily able to surrender so much of our individual and uh, and collective sovereignties over the last several years. Um, crisis, panic, and fear can do that to you. It's almost a Spanish Inquisition, isn't it, right? Uh, or, or a joke of a Spanish yeah, Inquisition. Right. And in this instance, right. uh, I meant that. Yes, yes. yes. The, right. uh, what we what we saw during the pandemic, and what led us together uh, to end up on the show frequently with my son Lewis, was to look at data every single week and talk about what the reality was, in contrast to what was being done across the nation and what people were willing to put up with. Well, you still see it today. Uh, in airports and in other public places, uh, you'll see people wearing masks. What that might be conveying is that they fear they have a disease and they don't want to spread it. But more likely is the case, they still believe that they must wear this as a signal that they are virtuous uh, because that is uh, what should be done in an era of COVID to avoid spreading the disease among us. And when one sees that, when I see that at least, I'm just puzzled because the data is painfully clear now that the mask-wearing stuff that was going on during COVID did very little, if anything, to stop the spread at all. And that assumed that you were wearing things correctly when you have the uh, the scarer-in-chief <laughs> talking about everybody having to uh, exercise their patriotic duty to wear a mask while fondling it, waving it about, rubbing it on furniture, and otherwise demonstrating everything that his own CDC said was the wrong thing to be doing with a mask, you wonder why anybody had any chance at uh, having any success with masks. But that was true on a whole host of these kinds of things. Um, you recall in the first few weeks it was that COVID could be spread uh, by droplets on on hard surfaces. Fulmitic disease, I believe. Yes, and, uh, fulmites, yes. Correct. And ultimately, all of that got overturned. Now, remember, we were leaving groceries outside. Yes. And wiping, oh, Lord God. Yes, we yeah. have to use your your baby wipes on the bananas. Right. Um, notwithstanding that they have a cover on them already, <laughs> um, but uh, then you could get a banana case to put the banana in. In its well, okay, yeah, I digress. We, we did that. Though. Yes, we some did people that. did. And um, the the point is that. There were not very many people willing to stand up against the onslaught of that political pressure. You were few. You were one among few. And the 
the reality for today is to look out and see who stood against that properly so and did so for the right reasons, not because they're anti-government or they're uh, anti-left or whatever it might be, but because they were looking at numbers. They were trying to analyze and understand it. Ron DeSantis is an example of that, who led in a state that was excoriated Mm -hmm. by the left. The New York Times and every major media outlet beating the crud out of DeSantis. Texas as well, uh, Governor of Texas, and even a little bit Arizona yeah. uh, with our own South Governor Dakota. Ducey, South Dakota. Yep. And, and yet DeSantis, uh, occasionally the numbers were bad, but occasionally the numbers were good. Also at an old population. With a, yeah. When you started adjusting yep. for the demographics, yeah. the results in Florida and elsewhere were remarkable. Well, randomness happens. And that was the biggest issue for this whole pandemic is that people who wanted to exert and project government power were unwilling to examine the bases on which they were doing that and kept arguing, just trust us. That demonstrates a society in which we have dumbed down our population through an education system that back to the beginning of this show has failed to taught the teach the value of liberty that we that the loss of one's freedoms establishes precedent that is very very dangerous and all of the kinds of things we need to teach our population about and that we need to celebrate are in the founding of this country they are not to be run away from it is not slavery that marks us and is the essence of the society, but it is the aspirations that raised us up to be the most impressive society ever known to humanity. And we and we and and, and we committed hair carry over it. We well, Abraham Lincoln over. warned us yeah. that this society would not be crushed right. by outsiders. Right. In his speech to the Lyceum, and right. uh, I believe it was eighteen thirty-eight, right. that we would. If this experiment is to end, we'll it be will its be. Author en- and finisher. It, we will yeah. be its author and finisher. Right. That is correct. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. You've probably been hearing me talk about why refi for a while now. And if you still have some questions about what it could mean to invest with them, they are asking that you get in touch with them and they'll happily put you in touch with any number of their satisfied customers in the Phoenix area who have done just that and are doing very well. Their number is 888-YREFI34. And they'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing. If you'd like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed, did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds, and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or give them a buzz at 888-Y-REFI-34. Hugh Hallman, my guest in studio, you wanted to say a word about totalitarianism, well, I think, or creeping totalitarianism. Yeah, creeping totalitarianism. Uh, totalitarianism. Your, your monologue in the first hour yeah. s- starts out by the description from George Orwell of what the Stalinists were doing mm-hmm. and how they were changing the past to create a history that served the interests of the party. Yep, capital, capital T. T, capital P. Right. And a couple of things that... I was giving examples about the Soviet Union uh, that were true. For example, once Stalin fell out of power, mm-hmm. his face was altered on on paintings, on 
on uh, tile work that had been done in the subways. But it didn't start there. The entire founding of the Soviet Union started in this process. And to think about how pernicious this is, the, the word Bolshevik, which we all grew up knowing to the extent we were studying the Soviet Union, is actually the word for majority. And Menshevik were the minority. Those two names were ascribed to the two main leading party groups creating a communist society. And that itself was a lie. Because Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky created the word Bolshevik when they were the minority and applied it to themselves, <laughs> saying, effectively, we know we're the minority. We're going to call ourselves the Bolsheviks, the majority, and call them the Mensheviks. Mm -hmm. How did they get away with it? Because the Mensheviks weren't as dishonest or willing to be as dishonest. That's where this starts. And when you have a group of people who would be dishonest about the fear and terror of, for example, HIV, mm -hmm. that HIV would infect the entire population and create a destruction so that they had to try to exercise power and protect us from that is an example of a totalitarian tendency. Well, we saw it with COVID. We saw people using COVID as an experiment to demonstrate how much authority and power can they exert over the population in these United States. None other than Anthony Fauci not believing he would be able to herd people into their homes and keep them there discovered he could. And if you have the weapons of that process, the media in our current environment, social media, these things we call telephones that are actually supercomputers we carry around with us that can be filled with propaganda. The propagandists went for it. And so now we have a process by which the United States is no longer known by 1776 and the philosophy that uh, flowed around and gave rise to our uh, Declaration of Independence. We have different philosophy. So we went from the leading civil rights lawyer in the world telling us that racism was bad and discrimination was bad. None other than Thurgood Marshall in, as you quoted, Bort, Bort, uh, in Brown, his yeah, in his brief to in the, his board, brief to the know, Brown to the v. Board of Education, yeah, right. the Supreme Court hearing, it right. was, quote, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and so invidious that a state bound to guarantee the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any public sphere, period, unquote. That's Thurgood Marshall, who ultimately gets appointed to the Supreme Court as the leading civil rights lawyer, a black man, an African-American. And now, a generation and a half later, we have Ibram Kendi uh, saying the only, quote, the only solution to past discrimination is present discrimination, unquote. That is changing our history mm -hmm. and saying and, and one can imagine that Thurgood Marshall's writings are now going to be rewritten yes. to demonstrate that he must have been wrong. And what he meant to say is, you know, some discrimination is good. More discrimination is better. That leads us to a society in which we face totalitarianism. This is the notion that people who do not remember their history are doomed to repeat it. Well, why am I drawn to that? Our world history right now is being altered by a madman, in my view, who is running Russia, pining for the days of ultimate authority in the Soviet Union. Vladimir Putin is trying to rewrite history. 
and the history is trying to rewrite is the fall of the Soviet Union. He is trying to rebuild the Soviet Union in his own image for a whole host of reasons, including that his mother was Orthodox and he wants to reignite not the Soviet Union, but the Orthodox uh, uh, power base. And so now we are moving towards repeating history. Example, in 1961, to steal a page from the Soviet Union, a very important Soviet poet wrote a poem to explain why the Soviet Union, why Russians specifically, were peaceful and were not seeking to take over the world yet again through war. It's a poem called Hatyat Liruskiye Vaini. Hatyat Liruskiye Vaini. Why do, or do Russians want war? And it's a beautiful poem, Sovietized nonetheless, about the fact that only 15 years before, the Russians had lost tens of millions of people. So if you want to know whether Russians want war, go ask the silence that hangs over the fields under which millions of Russians are buried. Go ask the sons of those soldiers who were buried there. He could write that because it was true that in living memory, there were millions of people who knew what the sacrifice was to save Russia and the Soviet Union from the Nazis. We have forgotten what it means to lose our freedoms. And that's what's at stake today, because our young people are not being taught what they are experiencing is freedom and liberty. And as a result, too easily will sacrifice it to those who would exercise power over them. Well done. We'll be right back. I want to thank you, Hugh Hallman, for joining us, as you always do uh, these Tuesdays. You were mentioning a uh, poet 1961, uh, talking about um, the quest for <clears throat> peace and the quest for understanding the challenge to life. There was another poet in 1961 speaking in Phoenix. And what that poet, speaking in Phoenix in 1961, said for the first time and would later repeat variations of this is that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed down for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like to live in the United States where men were free. Yeah, I've always thought we in Phoenix owed a special vouchsafe to that poet and uh, that piece of poetry by Ronald Reagan because it was first uttered here at a Phoenix Chamber of Commerce meeting in 1961. And he did variations of that. You saw it in his inaugural as governor in 1967. And, of course, it was suffused throughout his farewell address to the nation in 1989, where I urge everyone to go online if they don't have it in a book and read it, because it was Ronald Reagan leaving the White House begging the American people to teach American history and create what he, and reinstall what he, call, reinstall what he called an informed patriotism. He warned in that farewell speech about not just an erosion of American uh, memory, but erosion of American spirit as a result of the erosion of that memory. And if you think about that warning and when it was given in 1989, it's been just about a generation, hasn't it? 34 years. What do they, we call it a generation, about 30 years, give or take. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Well, we probably didn't do a good enough job of heeding that warning or his poetry, but you know who did? The left, they, they understood this. They understood the power um, that every, uh, every tyrant understood, which was about historical revision, changing the past, 
um, not teaching uh, the children uh, what they should know, but using the schools to teach them what the tyrants want them to know. Uh, They understood this. And so while we're now talking news of the past 48 hours, very rightly so, about the lab leak that uh, came out of Wuhan, there was a far more toxic lab leak that came out of our ivory towers, Uh, the lab leak of Marxism, the lab, lab leak of progressivism, the leak that we said would never really leave the university campus. And when kids came home from spring break and came home for Thanksgiving break and spouted these weird ideas, we convinced ourselves, well, that's just college. That's they'll get their first paycheck and they'll be fine. Well, we were wrong about that. They were right about that. And so the lab leak of Marxism and toxic ideology that came from our ivory towers has affected far more than what came out of Wuhan, because what came out of Wuhan affected our lungs, and this affected our brains. And it seems about time to me we go back to that poetry. It's not too late. But it's getting there. The hour is late. And we're out of time. God bless you, Hugh. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.